it's one thing to say you are, but it's another thing to practice it. I know ESG also from a company perspective can be really overwhelming. I know a lot of founders I talk to, they're like, we're too small. You know, there's too much to do. No one's going to notice us. It's okay. And so they're overwhelmed by all of it. And so if, but if you break it down and just focus on one or two things to do each year, and you do want to be a sustainable company, it's actually feasible. It's doable. Welcome to How Women Inspire, where women lead, invest, and give. I'm your host, Julie Castro Abrams, founder and CEO of How Women Lead and managing partner of the venture firm How Women Invest, feminist, social justice warrior, mother, friend of 50,000 plus badass women, and an expert at helping top executive women get on boards and break down barriers for women entrepreneurs, investors, and social impact activists. In this podcast, we interview women influencers and leaders from across the globe who are in the C-suite, founding companies, investing, and agents of change. We'll share stories of how women lead. We'll provide insights and data, tips you can put into action, and get to know the women who have fiercely and unabashedly stepped into their power in leadership and open doors for other women like you. We discuss topics ranging from the journey of getting a board seat, how we can counter cultural frameworks that change the way the world views women leaders, what we're doing to close the gender funding gap, and driving equity for women in all aspects of life and career. My goal is that after every episode, you walk away feeling inspired, unstoppable, ready to level up and step into your power and influence. I want to break down the cultural narratives that hold us back collectively and those messy messages you heard that are taking up way too much of your brain space. I want you to know you're invited in because I know that together we can change the culture change opportunities, and create the future we want for our daughters and sisters and friends. This is our time. Are you in? Welcome to How Women Inspire. Today's guest is a seasoned fintech and financial services product management executive who for years has helped fintech companies and startups in developing B2B payment strategies. But let me tell you, There is so much more to this woman. She is just a brilliant, kind leader who steps up and makes things happen. Millicent Tracy spent just about 20 years at Wells Fargo working on online banking for business and building digital payment platforms like Zelle, which we all use. Thank you very much for that. Made my life so much easier. (laughs) Millicent is the oldest of four and the daughter of two working parents who immigrated to the United States in the 1970s. Millicent's mom was the first female doctor in her hospital just outside of Chicago. I'm in Chicago today, by the way, Millicent. I love this. I know you're so passionate about developing girls into strong, confident, mentally healthy adults. And you believe wholeheartedly in the saying, educate girls and save the world. And I know you're educating a couple beautiful girls right now. You know, everything about you is what I consider like a whole woman, whole leader frame. And, And you've been such a great 
committed leader, you know, in helping other startups. You know, there's so many women who are trying to break through and and emulate you and do sort of, you know, leverage the great uh, innovations that you made happen in the world. You also sit on the board of California Bank of Commerce and a lot of other early stage fintech companies and nonprofits. Millicent, what an honor to have you as our guest on this podcast. How are you doing today? Good. I'm doing great. I'm so grateful to be on this podcast. And I just want to thank you, Julie, for being such a great leader of how women lead. I've been involved, I think, for a little over the last last two years. And it's just really brought such just so so much stuff to my to my life and to my professional life. And I'm just so grateful. So I'm honored that. I'm on your podcast with you today. So I'm doing great. I can think of no one better. And how much fun to be able to spend this time with you, Millicent. What a, what a treat. All right. I want to know what kind of music you listen to in those moments with life's good or life's touch stuff. Like what, did you have a theme song or something you break out and, you know, in the privacy of your own bedroom? <laughs> I do. I am embarrassed to say I, I do love a lot of pop. Maroon 5 is my favorite, Aww. you know, especially... This sounds a little maybe cliche, but I love that song Girls by Adam Levine. And I just, I love like fun, happy music like that. Are you generally an optimist? Like, is that sort of your go-to place? Is like, I just want to be in the, in, in that place or is that balance out your, your other side? No, I'm, I'm generally, I think for what, for good or bad, I think I'm an optimist. <laughs> Some might call it naive, but no, I am an optimist. I do think that things are going to work out. That really came to light when I lost my middle daughter about 15 years ago. So despite that, I am, I am an optimist. I think things are going to work out and things are going to happen the way they're supposed to happen. Really sorry to hear about that loss. I didn't know about that. And I can only imagine what kind of strength it takes to be able to pivot and and make sure you hold up the rest of your family when you're going through something like that. That's super tough, Millicent. And I guess we look at you on paper and it's like, oh, she must have had it so easy. Uh, You know, you've done so many things. You're such a ceiling breaker. Let's start at the beginning, sort of maybe your educational background. What kind of educational background sets someone up to be like the goddess of fintech creating Zell? Well, I don't know if mine was like the traditional. I don't know if there's any traditional path, but I started out as a lawyer, which was very short-lived. I realized it was just not enough for me to be involved in only kind of a legal aspect of businesses. So I did that for about a year. I then decided to get a broader business background. So I went to work for Arthur Anderson. For those of you who remember that, they were one of the big five accounting firms. And I did, I was a tax consultant for financial services firms and hedge funds. And then I went to work for a startup, which is when I got into product management with software. And that's where I really discovered that I love being a product manager. I love kind of being the CEO of of a new product, developing it, launching it, owning it. And so luckily, Wells Fargo actually recruited me. I ended up being there for, like you said, just under 20 years. I didn't think I was going to end up at a big bank for very long, but Wells Fargo has been a great supporter of work-life balance for women and parents with families. So I feel very lucky. And so I'm not going to say I chose to go into fintech and financial services, but I ended up there and I ended up loving it. Yeah. So I feel very grateful about that. So when I think about the time that you were there, 
even in a great company like Wells Fargo. It sounds to me though, like, you know, you had to juggle a lot in that period of time. What are some of the things that you learned or that you could recommend to other people who are juggling sort of, you know, life and big jobs? Yeah. So I hate to say this, but you don't need to do do it all. <laughs> you can only control so much and only focus on what you can control. I'm not going to say I have very good time management skills because I think I'm always running five minutes late. I'm always kind of dashing you know, into a room late. But if I were to do it over again and what I tell my girls and my two teenage girls is just you know, think about the one or two things you want to get done that day. And just be happy if you get those things done. And don't beat yourself up about it. You can spend five minutes thinking about it, grieving, being mad at yourself, and then just move on. So pick it up and, and pivot. Go on yeah. to the next thing. Well, that, yeah, I just think that perspective is is a critical way for all of us to be able to also prioritize. What are the big the metaphor, the example of like, you know, putting the big rocks in and then putting the Mm -hmm. sand in and then putting the water in, right? Do you feel like that that's how you think about things for you? Yeah. I focus on the big rocks and then kind of let everything else just happen. (laughs) All right. So, so as a woman in financial services and ceiling breaking in the way that you have, do you feel like there have been challenges or pluses specifically by being someone who maybe wasn't the the first people expected to be leading and, and driving this innovation. Yeah, I do feel, especially in banking, you know, if that's a traditionally male industry. Looking back and even today, I feel pretty lucky in that I've seen it with other with other women where they're not treated as equals. I feel fortunate in that I don't think I've been in too many positions where, at least that I'm aware of, that that's impacted me. Now that again could be because I'm naive, but I've always pretended and assumed that whenever I'm with a male, that we're equals. Yeah. And just kind of spoken to them like that. And and you know, a couple of times I've got my hand slapped because maybe I was a little too direct. But I think that's kind of served me in a good way to just kind of say, cut the BS and like let's just get down to business and do what we need to do. Oh, I love that. Well, and wouldn't it be great if we could always feel like, let's just get the work done and stop dealing with the drama. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, so I think about sort of, you know, you were doing B2B payment strategy works, you know, in a time before when the internet was still pretty nascent, you know, things were really early on. What are some of the biggest issues that you had to help solve when setting those things up? Like behind the scenes that give us a view that we wouldn't have known otherwise. Yeah. Well, I think back in 2000, a lot of our customers, and I'm talking companies, you know, small businesses all the way to up to like fortune 500 companies like Apple, people weren't interested in conducting any banking on the internet. The internet was kind of still new especially with respect to financial transactions. And so there was a lot of conversations with customers on, really, I'm going to log into the internet and actually move money or pay somebody? How will I really know if it gets there? Exactly. How will I know if it gets there? How do I know I'll get the money? I just want to write a check, you know, that kind of thing. And also early on, online fraud hadn't developed really to the sophistication it is today. And so... There was just a, despite that, there was just a lot of concern that it wasn't going to work. 
Yeah. So there was a lot of time around educating folks about that it's going to be okay, but also teaching them new ways to protect their finances and their funds, their money. You know, they had to make sure that, you know, writing down their password on a piece of paper wasn't necessary, even though that's what they needed to get in. Like that probably wasn't the safest thing to do and leave it in their office and for other people to see. And the and, on your right hand. And the right. <laughs> exactly. Right. And instead of signing a check, they had to find maybe one person would initiate a, a payment, but then you'd have another person approve it just yeah. to make sure that that one person wasn't stealing money. So it was like a, ch- a change in cultural behavior and behavior sure. around money. Yeah. And how to conduct business. That was one, that was probably a, that was a really big challenge, really big challenge. So if I'm innovating on something new tomorrow and I need to be helping people with that kind of behavior shift, are there major learnings that you had that it's like do more early on or do, you know, get people on the phone and show or the computer and show them how to do it or yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of customer feedback and recurring customer feedback. So you know, if I were to build a new product today, I would get 50 customers and right off the bat, talk to them what their pain about their pain points and make sure what I was building was actually going to solve a pain point of theirs, not just to build, just to build. I would then also probably come up with a first version and then, you know, have them use it and just have the mindset that this version is always going to evolve. It's never going to be perfect because time's going to evolve. People are going to evolve, evolve. Behaviors are going to evolve and just kind of not beat myself up that it wasn't perfect right on the first launch, for example. So I think iterating with partnering with your potential customers is really important and listening to them for their feedback is really important. You, you made such a massive sea change in our country. I mean, I, you're, you're such a pioneer. It's very exciting. What are the new trends that we're, that we're seeing in fintech or that women-led startups should know about? I will say, you know, one big, I don't know if it's a trend, but something I'm noticing is there's so much amazing attention on female leaders right now. And don't be afraid to capitalize that. I mean, it's, in the ways of raising raising capital in marketing and just having a voice and and being and speaking in all these different venues like just take advantage about of all of those there's so many primarily female organizations like you know join those to develop network the other amazing thing is because there's so much attention on females and and women women are being so open to helping each other and it's uh-huh. just so it's it's really amazing. So again, I don't know if that's a trend, but that's something I see. And I, I'm surprised every time I mentor someone or talk to someone, how many people don't take advantage of that. I mean, just like how Women Lead is such an amazing organization and I can't, it's supported me in so many different ways. And I tell probably every day I have a conversation with someone about how Women Lead. Yeah. So just, I would say lean into those organizations. Don't worry about how much time you have or don't have, but just just start just leaning into those. Well, and I, I just think all of us sort of feel like somehow like we should help other people. We're happy to help other people. If you ask me to help you, I'm thrilled to be supportive. Asking for help yourself is actually challenging for so many of us. Somehow we we think I don't want to bother that person or mm-hmm. I don't want to get into some messy indebtedness. I think there's all these kinds of things that go through our heads, right? Absolutely. That's one of the lessons I'm teaching my daughters is it's okay to ask for help. So, so you, all these lucky women in their companies that you advise, my goodness, like to have you uh, as, you know, as on speed dial would be amazing. Why are you so passionate about that side of things? 
You know, I didn't, it's so funny. I, I love it now that I'm doing it. I didn't kind of try to do it, but I just, I guess there was a few webinars that I was speaking on. I found these women just reaching out to me after each of them and saying, you know, will you help me, you know, with my company? And I, I realized I enjoyed connecting with women and helping them and I could identify with them and helping them realize that they can be more confident, that they are enough that they're doing the right things. And that even if they don't, even that they think they're missing something, it's okay to ask for help on that things and whatever that issue is. So I love it. Maybe it's because I have two daughters. Maybe it's because I have two sisters. <laughs> you know, I don't, I wouldn't call myself a feminist, but I am a huge fan of women. And yeah, I just, I just really get a lot out of it. Well, if the definition of a feminist is somebody who wants other women to have equal opportunities, I would call you a feminist. Yes. Yeah. hundred percent. Times 10. So you just talked about a lot of things that kind of bring me to sort of the immigrant story, immigrants in the United States, you know, people immigrate, they're courageous and risk-taking by definition. So what about the, you know, growing up in an immigrant family, you know, how has that impacted your career path and, and your orientation? to the world. Yeah. You know what, Julie, I really didn't consider myself to have immigrant parents until the last couple of years when my father passed away. And it's really interesting that I now have this newfound respect for their experience. But one thing I definitely learned from them is, you know, working hard is super important, you know, to get your stuff done, to get what you want, what you want, being scrappy. Like I definitely... I'm very scrappy. Like if I, if I'm having issues with getting something done, like I will do whatever it takes to get it done. Now, because my parents were first generation over in the U S they were also what I didn't realize. And I just recently realized is like, they were trying to make us fit in Yes, and to, and, and they didn't surprisingly enough. And I'm a little embarrassed about this. They didn't want us socializing with any other kids or families that were not white even even Filipino or Asian, which is our background. And so we never understood that. We kind of thought they were crazy. But now in hindsight, I think it's because they just really wanted us to kind of fit in and they wanted kind of the American life for us, you know, even at the expense of, of whatever. That's a very common immigrant story, though. And I didn't realize that. Your language and your culture and, and some people assimilate, some don't. Or I, there's so many people who it's like, please, you know, I don't want my kids to have an accent. I don't want them to be ham, yeah. you know, because they see the pain that they, I live with an immigrant whose English isn't great. And, you know, it's challenging, you know, it's yeah. like, people treat me differently. Well, you don't want your kids to have pain. You don't want them to have right. pain. Well, and I, and I didn't realize that until recently. I mean, my dad, this is a little crazy. My dad used to pinch all, so there was four of us, all of our noses every day. Just because he wanted to make our noses less flat. I mean, that's. And as a white person with a big, long nose, I always wanted my nose like yours. Like, isn't that bizarre how we are? Uh So, yeah. And so I do now, and we, the four of us, we used to be like, oh my God, mom and dad are so crazy. They're literally racist because they don't want to associate with all these other people. But now I realize it comes from a place of love for sure. And just wanting to make sure we were successful and, and all that stuff. So, but I've definitely learned like how to be scrappy, how to work hard. What I didn't, and I don't fault my parents at this, but what I did not learn from them was self care. 
Yes. It was that you can still work as hard as you want. And sometimes you're not going to be happy and get what you want. And I didn't learn. I also didn't realize I had a choice or a voice and how I wanted to live my life. Like we were very much like whatever our parents said, yes, we were going to do it. I didn't realize till later on that I actually had a choice. And so it's interesting raising two girls who realize they have a choice, (laughs) which is awesome. Yeah. You just don't have modeling for how to handle that. Cause it's that's like, right. well, uh, yeah, I, I'll never forget my daughter, my oldest, I would say, do you want to wear the pink dress or the red dress? You know? And it's like, she had a choice. Right. And I would say, yeah. Kenneth, do you want to wear the pink shirt or the red shirt? And he'd be like, you know, how about this mommy? Should I wear the purple sweatshirt or the, he literally <laughs> turned it around. I'm like, you're too smart. This is really scary. Like, I mean, it was like, he was, had my number. He turned that stuff around. So yep, 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 yep. Okay. So, so you, you're come from an immigrant background. You started a lot, but you said it was just a blip. Do you use those, that legal background at all? I would think it's an asset. Oh, absolutely. I always say I wouldn't, if I were to do, do it all again, I would still go to law school. I learn. I use it every day. Even at Wells Fargo, I used it all the time. Whether it was reviewing contracts, kind of like trying to approach how to do negotiation, contract negotiations. I feel like it's also, and actually, Nancy Shepard, who I know you know, kind of made me realize when I was putting my board bio together with how women lead. It actually did provide a great foundation for risk management. I mean, lawyers by nature are always about identify the what ifs and how do you solve those what ifs. And so that is really helpful, especially on my boards, you know, not to be the naysayer, but just like, well, here are some things you might want to think about in case they happen. Just be prepared for the X, Y, and Z. So I use it all the time. I, I find it very helpful. We all need somebody who's keeping their eye on the, the, those kinds of risks and details. It's just, do you ever find that you, that sort of pigeonholes you a tiny bit in that role where people are like, you know, they actually take more uh, license to be a little more risk taking because they know you've got the risk managed on the other side. Like that's my experience with, with some environments where you, you know, you get pushed into being the risk person all the time. Yeah. Like kind of the cop, like the boundary. Yeah, Yeah. 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 I definitely feel like when I was at Wells, that happened when we would talk to customers about a product we were building. And so not only was it my legal background that was saying, was drawing boundaries, but also just the banking regulations all the time. And customers were like, why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? And so we were constantly like, here's why you can't do that. Like, I wish we could do it. Right. But we're actually protecting you. Believe yeah, me. Exactly. <laughs> I've had so many conversations with you about ESG. Mm-hmm. What is ESG? And if you were going to say like, why are you passionate and how is that really affecting boards and governance of, of companies? You've heard me say it before. My goal is for you to run the world. And let me tell you why. It's not just because I think you're fabulous badass and you know that I do. It is actually protective for all of us. When you have diversity on a board, for example, product recalls happen three times faster. Companies perform better. It's better for people. It's better for profits. And it's better for the planet. We need you to join a corporate board. And we need you to know when to advocate for it in your day job. October 16th through the 20th, How Women Lead is hosting our extremely successful 
fourth annual Get On Board Week. This week is full of virtual programming, content rich, but also connecting, connecting, connecting. And we know 85% of all board searches are word of mouth and through connections. We want to connect you with private equity firms that are seeking board members. We want to connect you with other women board members who've already done it, who are being tagged and can't take all the board seats that are coming their way. We will have board opportunities that we will share with you. Really, truly, this is our way to connect and propel you. This is one week. But what happens is people connect with people on LinkedIn or they create mastermind groups that they support each other all year long. I want you to step up and be part of the solution. My daughter needs you on the board. But I also want to inspire you to think about all the women around you where you can be the person who inspires her and says, I see you on a board. I think you should be on a board check it out come and explore invite 10 friends tell them that you believe in them it's the greatest gift you can give somebody did it for you and i want to encourage you to do it for another woman i look forward to seeing you at get on board week so we can get thousands of women on boards this year our focus beyond the private boards that we've always focused on we're adding the private board space it's time thanks for your partnership send the letter back down and help another woman get into action. ESG is environmental social governance. The way, you know, the first the way first way I'm going to answer that question is the way it's impacting a lot of businesses and companies right now unfortunately is because it's such a buzz. Now, yeah. it's a buzz, buzz for a really good reason and that's because it's really forcing companies to think about how to be sustainable. Again, environmentally, socially, in a governance perspective, like financially, et cetera. And so I think everyone's kind of, and because the we've all seen the data that shows that ESG companies um, actually do better financially long-term, everyone's scrambling to kind of all of a sudden be an ESG company. Yeah. So you really have to be careful about companies that say they are, you know, it's one thing to say you are, but it's another thing to practice it. I know ESG also from a company perspective can be really overwhelming. I know a lot of founders I talk to, they're like, we're too small. You know, there's too much to do. No one's going to notice us. It's okay. And so they're overwhelmed by all of it. And so, if, but if you break it down and just focus on one or two things to do each year, and you do want to be a sustainable company, it's actually feasible. It's doable. Even like things like focusing on having a diverse work workforce is enough, or even I know this might be too simplistic, but like even recycling or composting or choosing ESG friendly vendors, that's a lot. That's a, huge, sure. a lot more than other companies are doing. Just focusing on those those little things. I mean, I always my little ESG value add is you know digital payments are yeah. way better than checks from an environmental oh, perspective, oh, right? Just less carbon footprint. So I, I mean, you've probably seen there's all these class action settlements now, like they're coming through email rather than those little pieces of paper. Mm. And that's saving a ton of carbon emissions just from doing that. So it's easy to get overwhelmed, but I think it really does. I mean, I think if we just follow the data, you know, yeah. sustainable companies retain employees longer, they're happier. 
they're more cost, the companies are more cost efficient. Like it's kind of undeniable that they're, that they're more profitable long-term. The data says that, you know, the earlier you start with your ESG practices, the more sticky they are, they get embedded Mm -hmm. in the culture and the better they are, better you'll sustain and and perform over time. My experience with women-led companies is they're always thinking about this stuff pretty darn early on. Tell me a little bit, you advise so many startups and women run startups. So what are the things that, that you want them to lean into or avoid or the recommendations you have for people? Well, one thing I've noticed is a few founders I've spoken with that are female have said, I'm a female founder, so that's enough for me for ESG, but it's not. (laughs) <laughs> it's huge that you, that yeah. it's a female founder, but like you can do more. Mm-hmm. So just think about, make it a priority. Yes. Your priority is making sure your company is doing well, making money, but making sure that you have that additional lens is only going to help you in the long run. It's kind of like a kid, I guess, right? Like you've got your, you've got, you've got to get through your day, but you've got to think about your eye on the prize long-term. You want to grow your company slash kid to be like a good human being and have them sustainable. So it's kind of feed them the right way, make sure they get enough sleep. (laughs) It's really hard on the other end if you didn't do it right. That's right. That's (laughs) right. Cost is much bigger. That's right. Go to college or whatever. That's right. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's talk about family. Let's talk about you know, you, in addition to, you know, being a a mom, you also are are mentoring so many, so many younger girls, but what are the most important values that you're teaching your two teenage daughters? Yes. I'm trying to teach them how to gain confidence and how to be confident with themselves just now today, my 13 year old, my 17 year old, which is so hard. They are so hard on themselves. And you know, it's hard to watch actually, but to be fair, I don't think I was confident probably until my late thirties, if I really, if I'm really honest with myself. So I'm trying to think about and highlight to them all the time about, you know, oh my God, that's great. You should feel great about that. But you know, it's only when they come in, when it comes from their mom, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, so confidence is a really big, is a really big thing I'm trying to teach them. I'm also trying to teach them to trust their gut. Like if something doesn't feel right, then they should pay attention to that. And in some, in some cases act on it, right? Mm-hmm. There's so many times I grew up that I, I had a gut feeling about something and I ignored it because I was like, no, there's no way I'm not right. Or I doubted myself. And in the end I was right. So I'm trying to teach them how to, how to trust their gut. And then I'm also teaching them that relationships are important. And I think with my girls, they're very much on their phones or their devices. It's especially with COVID, it's been easy for them not to actually practice being with other people and learning, you know, life lessons through social situations. And so I'm constantly reminding them that like pe- people, there's going to be people in their lives, whether they like the person or they don't, or they like the person all the time. And they kind of just have to learn how to navigate different situations with people. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what value you call that, well, certainly a beautiful skill set. Let's talk about mentoring. So you have been a mentor to a lot of younger younger women, but also girls. Uh, what do you want people to, to know about the importance of finding a mentor? Because maybe like you just alluded to, maybe, maybe your daughters need to have somebody else outside of you telling them how brilliant, mm-hmm. smart, and wonderful they are. Mm-hmm. That's so funny. I just suggested to my seven-year-old to get a mentor. And she's like, oh, that's so stupid. <laughs> Mom. 
can just hear it right now. I know. So the one thing I would say is it's okay to have a mentor. Like I think a lot of, well, I know my older daughter and I don't know, maybe some other women think that it's not okay. Like, or maybe it's a sign of weakness to have a mentor. And I just want people to know, like, it's, it's okay to have a mentor. Like you kind of need a team, a board of directors, in fact, for Mm -hmm. you. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's different pieces of different people that might be helpful for you, for you and your career, your personal life. So it's okay to have a mentor and it's okay to want a mentor and it's okay to want to talk to someone outside of your family and you're not wasting other people's time. Other people, I say this to my daughters all the time. Other, everyone's an adult. People can say no and mm-hmm. trust them. If they want to be your mentor, they will, they'll either say yes or they'll say no. And it's okay either way. Well, and how many of your mentees have turned in, out to be really important people in your life that you learn from, or you call on, or they run a company and you're on their board? Like Totally. I mean, my thing now is especially younger, younger people, younger women. Um, I even have some male men- mentees. Like, I just want to learn about this younger generation. Cause I just feel so out of touch with it. That is so valuable for me to be in a relationship with them. And then my other thing is, you know, if you do, if you're comfortable finding a mentor, find someone that you're comfortable being vulnerable with, yeah. because I think that's really, that's really huge. Don't waste your time. Don't feel like if you ask someone and then you get to know them, you feel like you're stuck with them. Like if you're not getting anything out of it, it's okay to say, you know what? Thank you for your time. I've gotten what I have needed out of you. I'm going to move on. Well, there's nothing worse than wasting someone else's time. So knowing when you're both not, yeah, when it's, when it's time is critical. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I wish I'd learned that a little bit earlier. Same. So what do you think are the, the key leadership skills that have propelled you to where you are today? You, I mean, you, you're such a brilliant leader for all. Oh, you're so kind. Let's see. I think the biggest thing that helped me, at least in my career, is collaborating with other people that have different opinions and perspectives. There was a lot of projects, products, situations, customers, where I had to learn how to navigate conversations and discussions where we all disagreed on stuff. And I think being able to do that in a amicable way is really important because you're always going to have that. And and being on a board, you know, that's kind of the situation you're in a lot of time is, you know, you've got all these different perspectives, which is amazing because you see all these different, different points of view, but you all, at the end of the day, you have to make a decision for the benefit of the shareholders of that company. And so you really have to figure out how to listen to others, consider their opinion, consider yours, and then end up in one with one position or, or opinion. So I think that's, that's really important. Another leadership skill I think that's helped me is being comfortable asking for help and knowing when to ask for help. I think early on that kind of bit me in the butt a couple of times when I kind of didn't ask for help. I kind of portrayed that I knew what I was doing or I knew everything. And in the end, I got either I got outed just because I didn't know everything or whatever. But I think in the end, like in hindsight, it would have been perfectly acceptable to ask for help. And it's okay. It's it's not a weakness. In fact, I now when people ask for help or they they acknowledge the limit of their knowledge, I think it's really respectable for them to do that. I'd rather have somebody say, hey, listen, I think, you know, I I think I've met my capacity here. Can you help me figure this out? Or can we find somebody else or I need to be trained? Otherwise you're you're like wait, you spent all this time doing something that wasn't the right, right, right. As a leader, you're just like, just be clear. Just tell me what you can do. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, that just fosters this whole, the, the imposter syndrome, like you're creating an imposter. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I met you and was just like, who is this brilliant woman? And you've been so generous in giving of your time and mentoring and, and helping other women think about the corporate boardroom and, and other, and in being involved in our venture firm, how women invest, like what, inspired you to get involved with this work. And and thank you for, thank you. Well, I have to say, right when I retired from Wells Fargo, I was talking to a friend of mine, Charlene Lee, who I think uh, you know. Love her. And um, yeah, and luckily we had been at Burning Man together. <laughs> so I was telling her that I was exploring some board roles and whether or not I wanted to be in boards. And she said, you need to, ta- you need to learn about how women lead and join their board readiness workshop. So I did that right away. And I swear to God, that board readiness workshop, and I still tell people all the time, was amazing. Well, number one, it wasn't just how do you get on a board? It was here's how to think about if you even want to be on a board, which I think is a very important question because it you might not be at the right stage. It might not be for you. And so it helped me figure that out. And then the other thing was the women in my cohort, which I'm still in touch with a little bit, like two years later was just amazing. And the way you guys talk about and, and teach and coach about networking, I just, I don't know, it really, all of it resonated with me. And I swear to God, I could be on a commercial. I did everything you guys said Aww. and I got a board role. Oh, so, and I mean, and I just, and then I went on, I joined the get on board leadership committee and that for that week long. And that's another amazing event. And I know people are going to think you paid me to say this, but I literally <laughs> ask my family, I talk about it all the time the organization is just, is really amazing. Well, thank you for all your contributions. I mean, to me, it's an organization that is you. It's the network of women like you. We all come together and like, what is the change we want to see tomorrow? Mm -hmm. In addition to the work on the boardroom, you know, you've been involved with How Women Invest. And obviously, you know, that sort of aligned maybe with some of your wanting to advise startups and Mm -hmm. and board stuff. How does you're a banker, you've got a financial background. How is investing in ventures or how did you walk across that line? And how does this we need more women that are take, stepping into this power play? You know, how, how does this impact your financial, you know, projections for your own personal life? Yeah. Well, so I mean, I have to say, even though I was in banking and, and financial services, I was not an investor of my own, like by my own right. My husband had done, did a lot of our investing and I knew enough to be dangerous, but he just typical division of labor in a, in a partnership. He just did all that. That's when he knew he's comfortable with it. And I was like, great. It's one less thing I have to do when I retired. And I learned about Nancy Hayes, who does some of the investing workshops for how women lead. I joined her that one of those workshops, which again, amazing breaks it down your events create a really nice environment to be able to ask what I thought were stupid questions because there are no stupid questions. And so that's the only way you're going to learn. So through that, I've been able to start my own angel investing. I've learned how to take some risks, but it's really helped actually amazingly enough diversify our, my husband and I's investment and portfolio. He's very conservative, always shied away from VC investing and startups. The stock market taking a take. And you know, we just sold one of our companies. So you're like, well, my venture investments do it. Okay. (laughs) Totally, totally. So it's really actually changed our portfolio to be, and he's always said, you've got to be very diversified. 
And here we are. We're more diverse. Yeah. yeah. But in a different so way than he might have had the, the foresight. Exactly. So. That's fantastic. I think for so many of us, you know, you're so busy. You got to figure out how am I going to survive raising kids and running up a ladder. And I think a lot of us in our mid forties kind of look up and it's like, oh, this is a moment to tackle my financial, you know, strategies and and really sort of reset things. And there's plenty of time still, if you didn't start investing, you know, in the stock market, when you're 20 years old, you're steep, you can still do all kinds of things. So totally. Well, and then the other thing I learned is, you know, you don't have to invest with like millions and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like you can, and Nancy actually highlighted that for me. She was like, some of my investments are small. So like you can go in with like a thousand, five thousand $5,000, which is still a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, it just made me think about it in a different way. Yeah, fantastic. So when, so let's, I, I want to go back just a little bit to your board journey. So you said you did everything that they said in the class, which is great to know. If you were going to tell the people on this call, like what are the top tips that you would give them for getting a board seat? Okay. I would let everybody in your network know that you're looking for a board seat, number one, but along with number one goes, be very specific about the type of organization you're looking to be on the board of. And also that goes along with the first two is the third and be specific about the value you can bring to the board. Now, those things, three things make it super easy for your network to keep an eye out for you because it's kind of like when I have friends that say, oh, I'm looking for a new job. And you say, well, what kind of job? And they say, well, I don't know. Well, that doesn't help me keep an ear out for them when I'm talking to other people. But if someone were to say, I'm looking for a product manager job in a large bank, that gives me a little bit more to look for and keep my eye out for, for that person, as opposed to not being that specific. So I learned those three things from, from you guys. (laughs) And it really, as much as, as much as I I debated with Nancy, I'm like, that's not my value. I can't do that. We finally, I mean, she finally convinced me why I had the value (laughs) and it really, it did change. I mean, I I did, I did kind of, I was stubborn and I was like, no way, I'm not going to just be that specific. I don't even know what I'm looking for. And sure enough, nothing happened when I said, I'm just looking for a board role. But then the minute I got specific, I started getting opportunities. Otherwise they can't remember. They can't remember what, I mean. Okay, board seat. But if you say something super narrow, they'll remember. They'll always open the aperture, right? They'll always right, say, or they'll say, "Oh, I know someone at that type of company," and then they'll connect you to that person. And then, kind of the fourth thing I would say is, yes, networking. But the one thing that helped me, I think, is I network with people on a recurring basis. So, let's say Julie, I met you at that workshop. I would say, let's get to get, let's meet again in you know yeah. two months. I feel like that really helped stay top of mind with my network that I was looking. Yeah. So you got your first board seat and how many interviews have you done with different boards? I have done, let's see. So in total, I've probably done six interviews and I chose one, one board. And by the way, I did not ever want to be on a bank board because I don't know if you remember Wells Fargo was going through an account scandal right around when I left. And I was like, wow, that board has got to be going through the ringer, a lot of sleepless nights, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I kind of said, I'm never going to be on a bank board. Well, I did also say what do what you guys said, which was, you know, just accept every interview just for even for practice. So I went through with these interviews. I realized I liked all the people on the board because I have this thing where I want to meet every single person. 
And I said, and then I finally asked myself, am I really not going to pursue this because they're a bank? Like these are people that I feel like I can work through difficult conversations with. And so I ended up accepting the board position and it's been great. Oh yeah. So I think it's the people are really make a difference. Oh, they sure do. Because you can't really just decide one day you're tired of it or somebody bugs you and you're going to go off that board. Like that's what exactly. Exactly. So uh, we're, it looks like we're almost out of time. I would love to kind of know sort of like, what is next for you? Um, someday these girls are going to go off to college any day now. You're going to be free. <laughs> that does happen eventually. Yeah. And what's what's next for you? What are, What's your big next big goal? Well, so maybe this because it's right in front of me. I just, I want my daughters to get to a spot where they're happy and healthy and feel empowered to do what they want to do. So that's for sure. I do want to kind of switch up my board portfolio to add a few more board seats on, you know, some ESG friendly fintech companies. And then one thing I've kind of started that I want to continue is I just want to have a new adventure every year, whether that's trying something new or going somewhere different. Um, Just, I like to switch it up. Something to look forward to, you know, to me. Is there any one life lesson that, might summarize what you'd love for all the people listening to know and embed. Yes. You can't control everything. Just worry about what you can control. There it is. Get those, get the big rocks done every day, everything else. You just do the best you can. That's right. Spending time with you is such a gift. I feel, I feel peaceful. I feel like I, you have, you simplify things in a way that makes it so it feels like, of course we can do that. You know, you make it, you really make it feel like feel possible. And your girls are so very lucky. How can people find you if they want to connect with you for a board seat? Yeah. LinkedIn. I I can't believe this. I don't really do a lot of social media, but there's a new channel. I don't know if it's new called be real that I really like because it's about you being just taking a a shot of you and whatever you're doing, no preparation, nothing. And it's really, I don't know. It seems a little refreshing if I have to do social media. So I would do be real as well. So I'm on that as well. Yes. Fantastic. As we close out, I just love to hear about which of the parts of our credo right ring true the most for you. Be fierce advocates for each other. Say yes to helping each other reinforce her voice and be unabashedly visible. Yeah. So say yes. I always, that's every time someone reaches out to me, I hear the credo in my head saying, just say yes. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. So thank you. So Julie, I do want to say thank you for everything you've done with How Women Lead. And it really is such a big part of my life. Well, being being your friend is, is, is a great gift to me. So thank you. This conversation has been fantastic and so fun. What an honor for all of us to hear about your journey. And I feel like every single one of us is walking away learning so much. If you would like to hear another podcast, go to howwomenlead.com. You can get email notifications um, every time a new episode goes live. You can also find us on LinkedIn or Instagram at howwomenlead, all one word. Have a wonderful day, my friends. Just pick the two big things, the rocks that you need to get done today and you can't do it all. And that's okay. Let's just breathe, breathe through the joy of being, being part of it and ask for help. Those are a couple of big things I took away from today, Melissa. So thank you. And with that, I want to thank you all for listening to today's episode of How Women Inspire. And because your inspiration should not stop when this podcast ends, head over to our website, howwomenlead.com. 
Follow us on LinkedIn at How Women Lead and subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app to find out how you can proactively take charge and step into your power through our workshops and activism in our loving network. We want to propel you. See you next time, ladies. And remember to be unabashedly visible.